Welcome to Trials Miles Podcast, a podcast where we talk about life's ups and downs and the beauty of it all. I'm your host, Casey Hool. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I'm so excited for you guys to be able to hear from Kim. She's amazing. I love talking to her and you will see why in just a second. Before we get into the episode though, I wanted to take a second to ask you guys to subscribe to this podcast and to follow me on either Facebook or Instagram. You can find me on both Facebook and Instagram at Trials and Miles. That's my handle. You know, I have been so blown away by how much support I've already gotten, but I want to keep this thing rolling and spread this little podcast to as many people we can to help spread a little joy and light into their lives and mean a lot to me to have you subscribe and follow me. So if you could do that, I would love it. And without further ado, let's get into today's show. Welcome to the Trials and Miles podcast, episode five. Today we have the beautiful Kim White. Kim, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Super excited to get to talk to you. I found Kim like a lot of my people on Instagram and I have been so drawn by your story, which is funny because when my husband had cancer, I was like, why do people care so much? Like, because we had a lot of people who followed along with all his stuff. But now I totally get it when I'm like on the opposite side. I like love reading all your posts and all your stories and you're just amazing. I love following along with your story. Oh, thank you, Casey. It's been, it's been crazy. That's for sure. But you're right. A lot of random people um, get invested and it's actually pretty cool to have that kind of support and love from strangers. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think it's awesome that people actually really do care so much. It was something that blew me away, but it definitely kind of keeps you going lets you know that there's some good in the world still. But before we get into all of that kind of stuff, um, do you want to kind of tell us about yourself? Just a little intro. Uh, sure. I um, I grew up in Utah. When I graduated high school, I moved to Iowa and I played soccer for junior college out there for two years. And then I transferred to play for the University of Iowa. And that is where I met my husband. He was in dental school and I was finishing my undergrad. So we met there and then he finished residency. We had our little girl out there in Iowa City. And then we didn't know why, but we um, we were very prompted to move back to Utah. Uh, my husband's not from here. He's from Oklahoma. But we just knew we needed to be in Utah for some reason, even though it's a terrible place to be a dentist because there's so many of them. And we moved back to Utah. And then six months later, I got cancer. Oh, wow. So, that's crazy. That's a little um, bit where in Utah are you from? I grew up in northern Utah, up in Cache Valley, in Providence. Okay, cool. I am a Utah girl as well. Um. And I actually went on a recruiting trip to University of Iowa for running. Didn't end up going there, but I thought it was awesome. 
So I know a little bit about your story just from following along on your Instagram and reading a few different articles that have been written about you and stuff. Um, but so you got diagnosed in 2014, correct? Yeah, it's almost been four years exactly. Awesome. So we're at the four-year mark. So do you want to kind of just tell us, I mean, it's four years worth of trials and stuff, but kind of walk us through the gist of the story, how you got diagnosed, what was going on in your life while you're being, when you got diagnosed, and just kind of the major the major points of your, of your story. Yeah. Um, I was uh how far along i was like eight weeks no i was 14 weeks pregnant and we didn't know because hensley was born in iowa city and i lived there all for that pregnancy that obviously i didn't really know any ob's mm-hmm. in this area so i had met a girl in my neighborhood and she was the only friend i really had and i didn't really want to tell people that i was pregnant yet so i had asked her and She'd recommended an OB and I went to that OB and she was terrible. <laughs> I asked her again. I'm like, okay, hey, she sucks. Do you know of anyone else that's good? <laughs> and she's like, I've heard good things about the, this guy. So I ended up going to him. And the first time I saw him was when I was 14 weeks pregnant. And I uh, went in and my blood pressure was sky high and you know, they asked me all sorts of questions about Hensley's pregnancy and if I'd had high blood pressure with her and I hadn't, everything about Hensley's pregnancy was normal and healthy. And um, so they couldn't really figure out what was going on because I was too early to be um, diagnosed with preeclampsia. And my doctor had never seen this happen before in all of his years of practice. So they tried putting me on some blood pressure medicines. It didn't do anything. Um, and then he was, you know, he admitted, I don't know everything. And so he asked an internal med doctor what he thought. And the internal med doctor said, I would, you know, do an ultrasound on her kidneys. There could be something going on down there causing her blood pressure to raise. And at this point I was feeling pretty awful. Like I could no longer carry Hensley up the stairs in our town home. Um, I was out of breath constantly and I felt really lightheaded and I just felt awful. Like I felt so sick and I knew something was wrong, but we just had no clue what was happening. Um, so I finally had the appointment of the ultrasound and, um, they came in and did the ultrasound and then when they came back, they brought in a specialist and he an obese, he was an OB specialist. And he was like, look, we found a tumor on top of your adrenal gland. And we were kind of like, really? <laughs> no. And it was actually more of a relief because I wasn't actually scared at first. I was, I was just excited because I thought, well, good. Now we know what it is. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can do something. And the doctor was confident at that point. He, he, you know, he goes, you know, we can, it's in a, an area where it looks like we can be able to remove it safely while you're pregnant. Um, so I don't want you to be concerned about that. And so at first it, it didn't seem too scary or too horrible. And I was just that we finally kind of knew at least what was wrong with me. Right. Yeah. And so they went to send us home that day from the hospital. And then right before we left, they, they 
changed their mind and were like, no, we're going to admit you. And, you know, we're like, oh, okay. It's never what you want to hear. We were not ready for that. Like our little is hanging out with grandma right now, but we have no plans of, you know. So they hit me, and I remember my husband like left and went and packed some hospital bags and like got stuff for us because we were not prepared for any of this. And right, and then they transferred me up to the University of Utah Hospital from just the local hospital that I was at because they could tell pretty quickly, I think, that it was more serious than they realized and that they didn't have any answers. And so we got to the U, and it was just the first like three days were just blood work and scans and, you know, just trying to figure out what type of tumor this was. And I don't know why, but nothing was telling them that it was cancer. None of them thought it was cancer. They thought it was a rare type of tumor called a pheochromocytoma. Mm -hmm. I eventually ruled that out. But three days after being in the hospital, um, I developed HELP syndrome which is basically a, a more extensive form of preeclampsia. And the only way to cure it is to deliver the baby. Mm. Most women don't get it until their babies are, you know, it's usually in the third trimester that they get it. And so then you can deliver the baby and everything's safe. Mm-hmm. But um, at this point, our little boy was only 18 weeks old. Well, 18 weeks in my belly and... So we knew that if we didn't deliver him that night, then we wouldn't have made it through the night. And so that was that was the worst thing up to that point was having to deliver our little boy, knowing that he was perfectly healthy and fine, and I wasn't. I was dying. So mm-hmm. That was kind of the start of everything. And then they kept me in the hospital for um, – for the first, I think I was in there for 12 days and they just kept running tests, still didn't know what it was, but my body was so weak that they couldn't do surgery and they didn't really want to attack it, not knowing what it was. And so then they finally sent us home and said, look, we'll bring you back in two weeks and do surgery. We're going to give your body some time to rest and, and then we'll bring you back in. So they went in basically blind, not knowing what it was just knowing that they needed to get it out and that it was causing havoc on my body. Mm-hmm. So they went in, it was supposed to be like a three, three and a half hour surgery. It ended up taking them five and a half hours. And, um, he could clearly tell that it was cancer when he got in and saw what it looked like. So he removed it. Um, he also removed my kidney at the time because he didn't know, he said my kidney kind of looked like it had been um, affected by the cancer too. So he removed it just to be safe. And then luckily he, because none of um, this next part wasn't ever shown in the CT scans that they had, but there was what they call the throm- a thrombus growing up through my inferior vena cava towards my heart. And it had branched off from my tumor and gone in there and they hadn't seen that on the scan so while he was removing the tumor he could see that there was this little kind of like canal that branched off and he told us afterwards that I was you know this ticking time bomb just ready to he's like if that would have broken off that tiny little you know sliver that was hanging on to it he, he 
said it would have sucked up into my heart and just stopped my heart immediately. Oh, gosh. So he removed it. He sends it to the lab. They're like, yes, it's malignant. We don't know what type it is, but it's definitely cancer. So, you know, the surgeon took my parents and my husband into a room and, you know, tells them surgery was successful, but unfortunately it was cancer. Hmm. And, um, that was devastating. My mom recorded that, that conversation. And that was really hard to watch later on just watching my parents. Cause she actually recorded like a video, not just the voice oh, gosh. <laughs> of my, my dad just losing it and whatnot. But I woke mm-hmm. up from surgery not knowing anything. Mm-hmm. And, um, my husband had been texting some of my friends on my phone. And so I asked him, I'm like, Hey, can I have my phone? And he didn't want to give it to me. And I was like, why? What's up? Like, give me my phone. Mm-hmm. And so then he sat down cause he had told my family, like, I'm going to be the one to tell her. I don't want anyone else to say anything. And so he sat down and told me like it was cancer. And in my head at that point in my life, I'd never, been affected by cancer before like my my grandma had had it but it was they just you know removed her breast and she was fine my mom had had a benign type of thyroid cancer so just I didn't really understand so in my head I just thought so great I'm a cancer survivor and I did nothing like yeah (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. I, I literally that's what I thought I was like so I'm done right like they removed it it's gone you know we're good and I think my husband will not think I know my husband obviously knew better. And so he just, but he let me kind of believe that he's like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we still didn't know what it was either. So we didn't know what we were up against. And then mm-hmm. a few weeks later, the pathology came back and um, they said it was um, adrenal cortical carcinoma. And I, I remember that phone call and not having any idea how to spell it, <laughs> not even knowing like what the girl said on the phone. I was like, adrenal, what? Like adrenal? Yeah. You know, it just sounded like a different language to me. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to write it down on a piece of paper and my sister was at my house and I'm like, this is whatever type of cancer I had. And I just like nonchalantly, not even a care in the world about it, just whatever. And mm-hmm. Trayton got home that night and I told him, I'm like, here, there's the, my type of cancer. I wrote it down on that paper. And he like, he's like a renal cortical carcinoma. I'm like, yes, that's what she said. <laughs> I'm going to decipher my writing. But, um, so he immediately went upstairs to go look it up on the internet, which is, I guess, not always a good thing. And in our case, yeah. <laughs> no. not a good thing because it was like, mm-hmm. Adrenal carcinoma, which I'm sure most of you have never heard of, um, it's a one in a million type of cancer. Prognosis is basically terrible. And so there we were reading it, and it was like, um, your prognosis is even worse if this has happened, if A, B, C, D, and I had like everything. Like I could check off every single box that was worst case scenario and... Like if your tumor is a certain size and then if it's growing in your IVC and like just everything that could have happened happened to me. And I was like, holy crap. 
no. that was the first time we kind of realized shoot this is really serious mm-hmm. at least for me that was the first kind of really scared that I was and mm-hmm. and so the next thing was we went to meet with a oncologist and he literally just kind of looked at me and said you're dying um you'll be lucky to live five years let me know if you want to try chemo it doesn't really work oh gosh and not what you want to hear yeah we were just shattered I was like my little girl's 18 months old I'm 26 mm-hmm. no this isn't acceptable this isn't okay and we left that appointment just just broken and you know and it was just I don't know it was one of the worst moments for sure yeah um I I've I mean my husband has cancer and so or had cancer um and that realization is one of the worst feelings in the entire world and I can't even imagine being in your shoes like his was somewhat rare, rare, but yours being even more so, it's just just so crushing. And after – so before you keep going with your story, I actually wanted to um, – you kind of brushed over it, but you started out this trial so – on such a bad note, losing a little baby boy. Did that kind of – how was – that mixed in with all of this I mean cancer itself is so hard to process but how is it losing him and then just repetitively like bad news bad news bad news was that did it kind of distract you from your grief from losing him or was it just making it worse um I don't know if it was a distraction I think it was I think for a long time we were in literally just living in shock of like how is this real like did that really just happen? We just lost a baby and now I have this terminal illness and, you know, now I'm dying. And, um, I don't losing, we, we ended up naming him Hinkley and, um, losing him was insanely hard. And I just, I, I just remember that day still, um, it was February 23rd and I never forget that, but um, the beautiful thing about that is like, no matter how hard I think about that and how horrible of a situation it was, is the more I've learned about this type of cancer, the more I know that that little boy saved my life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I believe that these little spirits come to this world for a purpose and his purpose I was simply to come and save his mom's life because mm-hmm. without him, there's we probably wouldn't have found it because the doctors believed that it was the hormones of a pregnancy and the hormones of the cancer mixing that caused my body to react so quickly. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know enough about my type of cancer to really know how long I had been there. But um, I know several other people that have had it that once they found it, it's too late. Mm-hmm. So for us, um, I just have to stay, I just have to concentrate on that when I think about him and just think about that he saved my life. And um, I just try and focus on that rather than focusing because I can get, and I have gotten really down about it because knowing that I'm the one that failed him, 
Because mm-hmm. I had a miscarriage before I had Hensley, and that is just such a different thing when when the baby just dies because you know something went wrong with the pregnancy, but it was nothing that you actually did. But when I lost Hensley, there was this whole new feelings of guilt and like I failed him and I I did this and it was because of me mm-hmm. and so that was really hard to deal with. So I just I've had to really work on remembering that he saved my life and to celebrate that part of it rather than dwelling on how hard it is losing a baby. Yeah. I, that's so beautiful. You already have me crying. I usually don't cry until like the very end of these episodes. Dang it. I'm going to, this is going to be a hard one. You can't talk about kids and and trials or anything. I just lose it. Um, but I love that you can turn one of like, I mean, to me as a mother, that's like the hardest situation I could like picture in my head is losing a baby, losing your little child. And, but what a beautiful way to think about it that he actually saved you. And I mean, like you said, these little spirits come with a purpose and he was probably very happy to, to do what he did, you know, and and looking over you now, I, I think, um, and I love that. Okay. Um, before I just start crying, let's keep going with your story. Cause we can't talk about this too much. Or I'm just going to be a puddle on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. so you went through all these crazy things. Um, and then the realization that this is super serious, that, I mean, you had a horrible appointment. They said you had about five years if you're lucky to live. What what happened? Where'd you go from there? Uh, luckily, my mom didn't accept that at all. And she didn't accept that oncologist opinion. It was like, no, this is, this is not okay. So she... Um, she just got on the internet and just searched cancer treatments or something. And um, the Cancer Treatment Centers of America was one of the first ones to pop up. And they, on their website, you can actually talk with someone live. And so my mom just started talking to some, some lady and the lady was like, oh, let me, um, let me call your daughter or something. So they called me and Within a couple of days, they had flown Tragen and I out to Chicago to go meet with one of their um, oncologists, and we spent a week out there. and um, And we knew it was rare, my type of cancer, but it's to the point that literally every oncologist has never seen it, or they, if you're lucky, they've seen one to two pieces. Um, I've now now that I know more about it and I'm on a Facebook group with the other people that have this type of cancer, um, there are, I think there's two doctors in the United States that um, are considered the experts. And um, so they've had, had like, I don't know, 15 patients. Or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my oncologist out there in Chicago, she had never seen it, but she was awesome. She was just like willing to fight and do whatever it took. And so she started me on a chemo pill. That was the first thing that she did because there is one specific type of chemo pill that's for this type of cancer, but it doesn't have great success rates. So she was like, we'll just try, see what it does, see how your body reacts to it and responds to it and um, kind of do deal with that. And then 
a few months later, I went back for a scan and it had spread to my lungs. Mm. And so she, there was a surgeon at the hospital that she's like, he's really aggressive. Some surgeons probably wouldn't do this, but I think he'd be willing to go in and cut out those. There were six like very small tumors in my lungs. And mm-hmm. he was like, probably be willing to do it. Let's meet with him, see what he thinks. We met with him and he was like, yeah, we can do that. So my, my original surgery was in March. And then in November, we flew out to Chicago and I had another surgery with my, to remove those tumors from my lungs. So we did that. And then three months later, they were back and it was, you know, it didn't do anything. Um, at that point, it was getting pretty aggressive in my lungs. So he does the surgery. Um, tumors come back. And so at that point, I'd been going to Chicago for about a year. And mm-hmm. um, she told me, we need to start um, oral or uh, IV chemo. And she's like, but honestly, any, any oncologist can give you this. There's, you know, any, when you look up this type of cancer, this is the regimen that they say can possibly help, you know, that's the most studied regimen for your type of cancer. And so I, I didn't know where to go because I didn't want to go back to where I had previously been because that oncologist was awful. Yeah. So I, I trusted my OB because he had just been a saint and he still to this day calls me about at least once a month to check in on me. Um, How cute. Sweetest man ever. And, yeah, that's awesome. And with my type of cancer, you, you need an um, a endocrinologist on your team because my cancer deals with a lot of hormones and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I loved my endocrinologist too. They were the two men that I trusted and had been with me since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so I asked both of them separately. I'm like, do you guys know of a local oncologist that you like that you've heard good things about that you would trust that I could, you know, and they both recommended who is my oncologist now, Dr. Stinnett. And which was great because it was closer to my house than going to Salt Lake for treatments and stuff. So mm-hmm. that's when I decided to start coming here. And then I started IV chemo and that was about um, just over a year from when I'd been diagnosed that I started doing IV chemo. And then after that, well, so then I did that for a year and chemo was, chemo was sucky. <laughs> I, I went Monday through Friday. Um, Mondays and Tuesdays were three and a half hours. Wednesdays and Thursdays were five and a half hours. And oh then gosh. Fridays, I would just go in just to get fluids to try and help my body combat the freaking disaster that was just done to it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I did that every four weeks. For a year. Wow. Yeah, that'll definitely take a toll on you. What, how was it like that year of just like destroying your body? What kind of kept you going through all of that? So I learned pretty quickly that week one was just awful. Week two was probably even worse. And then by week three, I would kind of start to feel okay. And then week four, I felt pretty good. And then it would start over. And so we literally almost every fourth week, we planned some kind of trip. We, like we did something every, 
Like we would even just if it was to go up to Bear Lake or um, to go down to St. George or um, just anything that could get us out of just staying at home and doing nothing. We just, we did it. We had to get out and that gave me the motivation to like, to be like, okay, I got a few more weeks and then we get to do this. It gave me something to look forward to and know yeah. that, you know, in a couple weeks we'll be okay. And um, like we went to have a soup pie in the middle of all of this madness and my, <laughs> my oncologist thought I was insane and thought I was going to die. And I'm like, I'll be fine. I'm helicoptering in because it's a 10 mile hike. I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> but you know, we're basically without cell phone service for three days in the middle of nowhere. But it was awesome. You know, we, I, right. I knew when I would feel good enough to kind of do something. And so we took that and ran with it. I love and that. I think that shows, I mean, for somebody to go through all that you've been through and are still going through, I mean, this to me, it was just like, this is how, right? Like you buckle down through the hard times, but then you put your focus on living your life still. And I love that. I love to hear that <laughs> you were doing crazy things, even though you you probably had no hair and you had like all these different crazy things going on in your body that that's like, I don't know, kind of ballsy. And I love it. Yeah. When I remember being at Havasu Pie and people walking by us, this bald, skinny as a freaking rod, like no bit of fat on my tiny little body. And I'm just in like this little tank top and shorts and I'm bald and people are probably like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> no, I, I love that so much. Yeah, it, was, it was awesome. Um, so this kind of segues a little bit into a listener question, actually. Um, there is a, a mother who also has a terminal illness and... Um, and I was just I was just thinking about this because you I mean you had a, a little two year old eighteen month old during all of this right yeah and I kept thinking about that in the back of my head I'm like she's still a mother she still has this little girl that she has to take care of so this um, this listener asked like how do you how do you still and how did you like during your year of chemo's and all your different surgeries and stuff handle the feelings of inadequacy. Um, based on what you could do before you were diagnosed and what you could then do after you were so sick? Um, and yeah. how do you kind of mentally not get down about not being able to do what you could have done before? Um, I think luckily with Hensley, she was young enough that she was pretty, well, and she's still resilient, but I think the younger they are, the more resilient they are. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely, that guilt has weighed on me a million times. And I recently was thinking about it and I was thinking, I have all of these ideas and thoughts of the kind of mother that I was supposed to be and that I, how I was supposed to act and how things were supposed to go. But Hensley doesn't. Mm -hmm. she doesn't know all she knows is the life that I've given her and that the mom that she was given she doesn't know what I was supposed to be you know mm -hmm. the mom that is here and honestly she just wants me to love her and 
even early on, like after my surgeries, you know, you got to be very careful with me. You can't come jump on me and wrestle with me. And but so we would sit and watch movies together. And one of my favorite things is we would, I would nap with her when she was still little and she napped. I would just go lay down because I had to nap every single day. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you did. Yeah. I always used that time to be together and to snuggle and to just love each other. And, um, it was hard for me because she was just being passed around from one person to the next person, you know. Um, but I I think for me, I just had to concentrate on the things that I could do. Um, I could sit with her and watch a movie. I could sit with her and color. And now she's gotten older, I think it's a little bit harder for her because she's seen me be, you know, healthy and active and fun. And so when I'm again I think it's a lot harder on her mm-hmm. and she totally gets it too like she'll be like oh mommy you're drained I don't want to hurt you or oh mommy this and she totally gets it now and she used to be too scared to like even come into the hospital but now she, she's totally fine and um but I think it's a little harder on her now and I I feel guilty at times but I kind of just I don't know. I guess I have to just look past it and be like, look, I'm doing the best I can. And that's all I can ask for. Because if I sit there and dwell on what I can't do with her, then I'm not going to enjoy what I actually can do with her. And then you're just in a pit hole anyways. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice for anybody, anybody who is a mother or a a father, you know, our children are ours and they are going to love us no matter what it's like the biggest blessing in the world to have like the love of the, of a little kid. And like you mentioned, you just gotta, they don't, they don't care really, or they don't know any better of you could be doing a different activity every hour or whatever, you know, like running around the house or out to the park. But what they want is just love and attention, you know, and you can do those any way you can. Yeah. And we just sit and just color. Like, we'll just sit there and we'll just, both of us will just do our own coloring, music on, and we'll just sing together and color. And I'm like, I can totally do that, (laughs) you know? Yeah. They just want to be with their parents. So I would just tell anyone that's kind of dealt with being sick and having kids that just find the small things that you can do together and just do them. You know, don't, don't think about what you can't do, but what you can do. Right. I honestly think I think sometimes people who have to live a slower pace of life like you when you're sick or whatever get more quality time with their kids, you know, because you 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 realize that you can't do it all. And I fall into that trap too much myself where it's like I want to spend time with my kids, but I also want to like fix up my house and I want to go do this and do that and then it's just I'm just running around with my head cut off so I think it's almost a blessing in disguise sometimes to yeah you might not be able to run around all day but you spend more quality time sometimes I think just snuggling and coloring and I mean your little girl probably feels nothing but totally and completely loved by you I always tell her that she's extra lucky that she's an only child I'm like you don't have to share our love Hensley yeah. I'm like I'm trying to make it because she, you know, she always says she wants a sibling and or she'll talk about Hinkley and be like, I miss my baby brother. And 
So I try and turn it into a positive thing and just be like, you get mom and dad's love all to yourself. You don't have to share it with anyone. Yeah, seriously. I know my little boy would definitely wish for that. (laughs) He loves his sister, but sharing is hard, definitely. Okay, so let's go back to the story. So you did the chemo pill wasn't super successful. And then you did IV chemo for a year, which you sounded like you were just a champ through. What was the outcome of that? So I had um, scans every three months. And there I think I had two scans that some of the tumors looked like maybe they had shrunk. Some were new. So at those points, they kind of just said, we're considering it stable because nothing's kind of gone crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think I had two scans that were considered stable, but everything else, it was like, nope, there's more. It's grown. It's spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by this point, it was the beginning of 2016. And my oncologist was like, it's in your liver. It's um, your lungs are just full of it. And he, he literally looked at me and he, I remember I could tell he was holding back the tears, but at this point he was just like, Kim, I don't know what else to do. He was like, I've called other oncologists in New York that have seen a few patients like you and we've tried everything that I know to try. And he was like, honestly, I think you maybe have like three months to live. Oh my gosh. And once again, we were just devastated and just couldn't believe that this was going to be the end of it. And and then a friend reached out to me who had, um, he had had a rare form of renal carcinoma. And he started an immunotherapy back in 2011 before they were even put on the market. And... Um, by this point, in t- well, in 2000, the end of 2014 was when um, immunotherapies were FDA approved and oncologists were now like allowed to use them. So I flew out to California to meet with this guy's oncologist and he had some specific testing done on my tumors and they, for immunotherapies to work, they need to carry this PDL one receptor. And mine didn't carry the actual receptor, but they, the receptors that they carried were very similar that he was like, I think your body can be tricked into letting this drug work. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, we got nothing else. You know, I've got three months maybe to live. So what the heck? <laughs> yeah. So we had my first infusion in um, California. And then I, f- I flew out three weeks later and had my second infusion and from the get-go, we were like, this drug's amazing. I had no side effects. I started all of a sudden feeling better. Like, things just were getting better. And then um, I had I'd gone to see my oncologist locally, and he was like, I can get you that drug here. But I think he was just kind of a little skeptical of it working and didn't really want me to put my, get my hopes up type thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But he like, I don't need to keep flying to California to get this drug. I can get it for you here. And I was like, well... That would save me a lot of money. That would be yeah. great. <laughs> so he started getting it here. So I had my next two infusions here and then they scanned me. And Tragen came with me to that appointment because we knew it was a big deal. And um, we go in and 
Tragan and my oncologist were had always like small talked and they like watching The Walking Dead and so they were sitting there talking about The Walking <laughs> Dead. And I was just sitting there rolling my eyes at them like, you guys, there's something serious we need to talk about. <laughs> and um he pulls up my scans and he's like, he literally, I don't even remember what he said, but he was like, he just scrolled through my lungs. Cause when you're looking through them on the screen, you know, it goes through depths of, you know, layers of your lungs. And there was just, like, these were your old ones where you can see, he's like, all of those are tumors. All of that's tumors. All of that's tumors. And he's like, and these were today's and he's like scrolling through and there's nothing there. Oh my gosh. And we were just, like, you could see the shock in his eyes. We were shocked. I'm like, what are you telling me right now? Like, what? And we knew that something good had to be happening because I was feeling good. And with my type of cancer, you just feel awful because it makes your blood pressure high. It causes so many horrible reactions. And I, so I had one tumor left in my lung and two in my liver. And that was it. Everything else was gone. Oh, my gosh. And we were just, you know, we were shocked. We were like, what the heck? So we spent that next, that was, um, that was in June of 2016. And that summer, man, we lived up, we lived up that summer like crazy. We went on all these huge backpacking trips. We went, you know, we took Hensley to Disneyland. We just, we just went crazy because I was healthy for the first time in so long. And I felt great. And it was literally, it was like the best summer. And I even said to Trey, and I was like, if I were to die now, like having this summer was the greatest blessing. And it was just my, our family really needed to have that three months of a break. It was was kind of like getting our breath back and being like, okay, now we can take on whatever else is coming because we were pounding for so long. And it was just bad news after bad news after bad news. And it was, it was getting really hard to keep our head above water. Mm-hmm. And so that was a much needed miracle in our lives. And, you know, three months later, of course, the scan comes and the tumor in my lung had just, or the tumor in my liver had just gone crazy. Mm. And by that point, it was um, 18 centimeters, which is about seven inches. Oh my gosh, that's huge. Yeah, it was. It was ginormous. I was like, where is it? I'm not a big person. Like, where? Yeah, so you see that on the outside. Yeah, like, it should be protrude, like protruding out of my body. But um, my liver had just grown with it. So my liver, you know, your liver is on the right side of your body. My liver had grown all the way to the left side of my body and then all the way down to my pelvis. Oh, my gosh. So it was just taking up my body, causing so much pain because it's pushing everything out of the way. Um, my blood pressure was again extremely high. Um, my my cancer causes causes really bad acne, and it also causes my face to swell up. And literally, I look like I've gained forty pounds in my face. It's crazy. Oh my gosh! Um, like when people see old pictures of me when I'm really sick and when my cancer has flared up, they're like, "That's what you." I'm like, "No, that's me. That's what my <laughs> me." Um, so we were again, like, well, shoot, what the heck are we going to do? Cause this immunotherapy did everything, but kill the, the one in the liver and the liver is like one of the hardest places to, to kill tumors. Cause the blood supply is so rapid. Um, so they tried Y90 radiation, um, where they actually go through your groin and up into the liver and, and put radiation directly into there, like these little beadlets. Hmm. 
and that didn't really work. It made me really sick and it was really painful, but it didn't do much. So then they tried um, a chemoembolism, which is they go back, they go in through the groin again and they put the red devil chemo, which is doxyrubicin, and they put that directly into your liver. And that made me so sick. And they did that. The first time they did that, I think, was in October of 2016. And then they did it again like three days before Christmas that year. And it was the worst Christmas ever. And I was so sick. Um, But still afterwards, like nothing was really working or it didn't seem that it was working. And that tumor was still just huge and causing so many problems. And then it caused me to need my gallbladder removed. So Tragen took me to the ER one night because I was in excruciating pain and they had kind of warned us and I had, um, I had gone to see them. I think it was that earlier that day I'd gone to see my interventional radiologist and he was like, well, there is a very small percentage of people that need their gallbladder removed when they have these procedures. And by this point we had learned that anything that there's a small procedure or a small percentage of people, it always is me. I'm always a small percent. Which is a good, it it sucks for most things. But then when I think about it in survival rates of my type of cancer, I'm like, okay, not, not very many people survive this type of cancer. So I'm like, I'm going to hold on to that part of it. Right. Yeah. And that's, again, being into the positive, you're so good. Well, everything else that's been negative, it was like only 5% of people lose their hair when they do the chemo embolism. So of course I did. And I had to shave my head twice, like my Mm -hmm. hair back and it was getting pretty long and then I had to lose it all again so it was just so much stuff like that happened but he was right that night I went to the ER the next day they removed my gallbladder and that turned out to be such a tender mercy and such a blessing in our lives and it's funny because when I look back I had specifically prayed um a little bit before that and I I just felt frustrated and alone that nothing was working. And I just felt like God wasn't around anymore. And I was, you know, I literally, I said to him, I need you to show up. And I remember, cause I do, I do this thing where I sit in the shower or in the bathtub and I just talk to him. I just, I talk out loud. I say whatever I want. I don't hide it. He already knows what we want. So I don't try mm-hmm. to about it. And sometimes I'm, I, I don't know, sometimes I'm a little aggressive and I'm like, look, this isn't okay. Like you're messed <laughs> up. What's happening? Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that prayer specifically of saying, I need you to show up. I need you to show me that you're still there. I need to see that you're still listening and I need to see that you still care about me. So I have that surgery. And then when I went to go, that, that surgeon had stapled me shut, which I, was so mad about anyways I'd gone to get my staples removed and he was like hey can I take your case to the this tumor board that I'm a part of I was like sure I don't care whatever mm-hmm. and little did I know that that tumor board is in an essence what saved my life because my freaking surgeon um Dr. Z um was there and he and my interventional radiologist was there as well and I think my oncologist was even in that tumor board as well and Dr. Z stood up and said like I can do this I can give this girl at least another 10 years and both of them were kind of against it at first and we're like no it's too dangerous it's too risky of a surgery 
And he was like, no, I can do this. So we I don't even remember who told me if it was my inner, I think it was my interventional radiologist said, look, there's this surgeon. He thinks he can do this surgery. I don't agree with it, but I think you should go talk to him just to see. And I had been told so many times that I was inoperable. So in my head, I was just like, well, you know, I'm inoperable. So why? Like this guy, th- this guy is clearly crazy. That's what I thought. And I was ready to go tell him that to his face and tell him that he wasn't going to, that I wasn't going to be his guinea pig. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we agreed to go see him. And even before that, I had called his office and talked to one of his front desk um, ladies. And um, I literally, I sat on the phone with her for probably like 30, 45 minutes. And I was just like grilling her. I'm like, would you do this if this was you? If this was your sister, would you allow allow him to operate on her? Like just, you know, asking her a million questions. And she made me feel really good about him. And then we go, my parents come with my husband and I, and and the whole way down there, because we had to drive down to Murray. So about a 30 minute drive from where I live. And the whole way down, I was like, oh, I can't wait to tell him that he doesn't know who he's messing with and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I was full of attitude, ready to go tell him, you know, what I thought. And sitting in his, um, in the room waiting for him to come in. And I, I can still see it. He walked in, he said, hi, I'm Dr. Zendejas. And he's, you know, he said, he said like, hi, Kim, I'm Dr. Zendejas and came and shook my hand. And I literally immediately, this peace and like insane comfort just came over me. And I knew right then I was like, well, shoot, you're going to do this insane surgery. And I knew like just looking at him, I just knew. And I just, I, and now that I know him more and he's like, I feel like he's like one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, a, a man can't save your life and you can't just like, you have this love for him. You can't ever express. It's just, Right. It's not possible. And now that I know him more, I, I understand why I felt that way that day because he's just that good of a person. He's that good mm-hmm. of not only is he like most talented surgeon, but he's that good of a person too. Yeah. So that's what started our process of me having an insane surgery that saved my life. Um, before you tell us about that surgery, um, I first Kim I just love you you have so much I can just feel the fire in you which I just am a huge fan of I think that's probably why you're still here and still kicking because you have stuff to do and people to tell off and I I love that you're gonna go tell off some surgeon that's trying to save your life like I don't know that is (laughs) my family gives me the hardest time my whole life about being overly competitive and now they're like it's probably a good thing you are the way you are. And I'm like, see, like I was. <laughs> no, in fact, um, my last episode, um, we talked about that for a second that God gives us these things like growing up. Like she was talking about how um, her dad was all into this like self-help stuff. And so she read a lot of self-help books that really um, were good for her for dealing with her trials and your aggressive personality growing up, which might have been like something that was a burden to some people. It's like, that is what is saving you. I can just tell by the way you talk and by the way you, 
you're like, no, I am going to live. We're going to do this. And I, I mean, I just love it so much. I wish, I wish I had more of that. I'm a pretty competitive person too, but not, not to your extent. I don't know if I would have the guts to go tell off some surgeon. <laughs> that's yeah. I don't, know. I, I don't even think that's competitive. That's just sassy or something, but <laughs> no, I love it though. I mean, I have some questions um that we'll get to at the end, but just like how you are able to handle all this stuff. And as I'm talking to you, I'm like, I know how she's able to handle to it. She doesn't have any other like option in her mind. I love it. Um you made me cry again though, talking about your surgeon. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about because the the surgeon, the two surgeons that performed my husband's surgery and then his his staff, every time he has checkups now, I cry. I'm like, guys, I can't go to these appointments because I cry. They walk in the room I'm like, you guys are the best people yeah, I've it's, ever known. <laughs> it's and funny. I- Sometimes I even just driving down I-15, if I go and if I just look at the hospital, I can just start crying. I'm like, he's just in there saving lives. (laughs) (laughs) This is bad of us, but my husband and I looked up because he's employed by the University of Utah, which is a state function. So they have to list the the salaries and stuff. Um, Oh, yeah. We looked up how much he made, which is so much. I'm like, he deserves every single penny and more. Like, they need to give him a raise, which I don't know. He makes a ton of money. But people like that, I'm like, they deserve every penny and more. They're just some incredible people out there. Oh, for sure. Um, so tell us about your surgery because I know this is this was pretty recent, right? Just a few We're months. We're coming up on a year, actually. Okay, a year now. Crazy. I'm still back and stuck in 2017, I guess. Yeah. So it was March 15th of last year, um, which I cannot believe that we're almost to a year mark. I'm just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, so he told us everything that day that he had planned to do. And he, he did. He looked right at me and he said, honestly, you can die. You could easily die on the table. He said, I've never done an, a surgery this aggressive this um, complicated and I'm telling you now that you can die on the table. He's like, or you can not do it and probably die in three months, you know? Mm-hmm. So, cause then again, when my liver, you know, just kept growing, they basically kind of given me like a two to three month lifespan again. Yeah. That's- so um, we go into surgery and um, well, we leave the office I told Tragen and my parents that I felt right about this. Um, and my mom and Tragen were on board. My dad was still very skeptical and just, you know, thinking about his little girl going through this insane surgery. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound like a great thing, but I knew. And so we, we prayed about it. Um, we even, um, since we're members of the LDS church, we went to, the temple together, my husband and I, and we just went and sat in one of the rooms there and just, um, just sat and just kind of prayed and wanted to just make sure that we had a for sure confirmation that this was the right thing to do. And we both mm-hmm. left. Like, yep, we're moving forward. This is it. So March 15th came and we went in and I don't remember anything from that morning except for checking in, which is weird because I've had 
over the, the course of the last four years, I've had six major surgeries and then I've had 20 plus smaller surgeries or um, procedures. And I always remember everything. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I don't, I literally remember getting to the hospital and then my memory's gone. Hmm. And there's pictures of me, you know, changed into my gown and sitting on the bed and waiting. And the, t- the surgeons always come and talk to you. And apparently, because I had a liver, or a, so I had my head surgeon and then he has two partners that worked with him. And then um, I also had a lung surgeon and I had a heart surgeon. And I apparently met my lung surgeon before the surgery. No clue. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and I had met my heart surgeon a few days before. So that's the only reason I know who he was. But mm-hmm. um, so they went in and the surgery was supposed to be 10 hours and it ended up being 12. Oh, gosh. Uh, they, so they removed, uh, it was about, I think it was like 90% of my liver, um, the entire left side and then a portion of the right side as well. And, and then they, um, had to remove the portion of my lung that still had the tumor in it. So they just cut that part out of my right lung. <clears throat> and then they had to reconstruct my IVC, which is the biggest vein that goes into your heart. Um, so that's now made out of Gore-Tex. Wow. And um, so it was just a very dangerous and aggressive surgery. Um, I came out of surgery and I wasn't responsive and they couldn't get me to like respond to anything. They were trying to do, you know, pain tests and all this stuff. And I had my eyes open, but you know, they're like waving their hands in front of me and I'm just, I'm not there. So like mm-hmm. it looked like I was awake, but I, I wasn't, nothing was happening. So they thought that actually thought that I had brain damage oh, and they had to go do all sorts of tests on that. And they, they ruled out the fact that I had brain damage, but they still couldn't get me to respond. So they actually, um, reduced or put me into a, um, medically induced, uh, coma and, that I was in that for about two days, and um, I remember it because I, I the, the the medicine that they put me on actually causes you to hallucinate. Oh my gosh! So I I was I thought I had died, and I remember waking up and being like, "Why am I still in the hospital, God? Like, <laughs> heaven? What is this crap?" And um, lo and behold, I wasn't dead. I was just hallucinating. <laughs> all these people were like popping up in front of me and it was just this weird, super out of body, creepy experience. Um, but, and then a couple days later I finally woke up and when I, when I opened my eyes, my mom was the only one in the room and she looked over at me. She saw that I opened my eyes and she walked over and she put her face like right in front of mine. And, um, she just said, are you in there? And I had the breathing tube still in my mouth. So I couldn't, Speak, but I just nodded my head and then she just lost it she just, she just fell into my lap and I remember she just cried and cried and then she got on the phone and she was like she's awake you guys she's awake she's awake and you know I had no idea that I'd been gone for two days basically and mm-hmm. um yeah that was that was intense and then from there on out it was it was touch and go and it was hard and it was scary. And I was in and out of scans and x-rays and procedures and, um, 
I was in the ICU for the first, I think, five, six days. And then I spent the next almost three weeks in the hospital. Oh, gosh. I had to relearn how to swallow and I had to relearn how to walk. And I couldn't even talk by the time they took my breathing tube out. And I remember the very first sip of water I had was so painful. And it was the smallest sip of water. And I could not swallow anything forever. Mm-hmm. So, and they had me on a feeding tube. And when they, you know, three weeks on a feeding tube, when they try and take that off, it's, your body doesn't really want to eat anymore. Mm-hmm. So I had to reconvince myself to eat. And that took months. And I just withered away. And um, I got down to 98 pounds. And I'm 5'7". So oh, wow. how scary that is. Um, mm-hmm. And so now it's just been a year of trying to let my body recover. Um, I had to go back in November and they had found another tumor that we think was there clear back in March, but we couldn't see it because the tumor in the liver was so large. Um, so in November they went back in and sliced me open again and oh gosh. went and took out another tumor. And um, the biggest issues that I deal with now is that I have this liver that doesn't want to stop leaking since surgery. So I've had to live with a, a JP drain in my body for literally almost, I think I counted it up and I think there's been 16 weeks that I haven't had it in since last March. Oh gosh. That's terrible. Yeah. I have one right now, which they suck and they're uncomfortable and they're annoying to try and get dressed and you can't get in the water except to shower so it's a bummer, but we're trying to get it figured out, and hopefully we do. <laughs> Is it his name, Dwayne? Dwayne the yeah. Drain? Dwayne the Drain. <laughs> I love that. Um, that, I was just like on the edge of my seat when you were telling me that. How incredible that you survived all of that. I can't even like... It had a lot of similarities to my husband's surgery, but just even more, just like, like I can't even comprehend all that you went through and that you're here just like joking about your Dwayne the Drain now. It's just, it's just, you're just amazing. Um, so what's the outlook like from here? Like what's the prognosis now? Uh, hopefully. So I, I still do my immunotherapy every three weeks. It's a, it's super easy. It's a 30 minute infusion. I basically just go in, check in with my oncologist. Um, and then I get my 30 minute infusion and then I walk out. I actually drive myself to my treatment. I go by myself. It's, it feels nice to be independent and not need someone to take me all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we're just still trying to figure out this drain situation. The main problem right now is that the fluid collection has caused an infection into my IVC because since the IVC is made out of Gore-Tex, it kind of sucks things in and doesn't want to let go of them. So I have, I've been on antibiotics for like the past four months, five months, maybe um, a bunch of different ones, but we finally have gotten the right one, I think. So hopefully we can kill this bacteria and move forward. But the, that's kind of what I deal with now. And so far scans have looked really good. Um, I'll have another big scan um, towards the end of February. Mm-hmm. 
and I, that will determine whether or not I'm considered NED, which means no evidence of disease at the time. Um, so we're looking forward to that. But I guess there's a good thing about my type of cancer is that you can tell if it's um, my blood pressure just goes high. Mm-hmm. So I know if my blood pressure is high, that something's wrong. So as long as my blood pressure is in check, I know that things are good. <laughs> yeah. That's a blessing that you can monitor it so easily, I guess. Yeah, because my blood pressure is the first thing to go when everything else happens. Well, that is just, I I can't tell you how happy I am that, I mean, you're good for now. At least, I mean, you have all these residual things, but it seems to me you're kind of at this place. And I don't want to like, I mean, knock on wood because you never know with cancer and you never know what God's plan is for you exactly. But I am just so grateful that you can at least have this place where you, you feel like you're pretty good. You know, you're solid. Yeah. And it, after hearing your whole story, it just, I don't know, it makes me so happy. <laughs> it, it's really crazy to be at this point. And it is, it's scary. And sometimes when I get on um, Facebook and get on my um the adrenal cortical carcinoma groups and read other people's stories and what they're going through and, um, you know, seeing other people pass away from it. It's just, it can be like, it kind of wakes you up again and you're like, okay, just cause I'm good now. And my history proves that, you know, I'll be good for three months. And then it's three months later, it's like whack, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Happens. But I don't know. I, I'll take it. I'll take the good for now. And, we've, I don't know, I feel like we've handled insane moments that whatever comes next, we'll just be like, all right, how are we going to attack it? Because that's all we can really do. I can't, I can't change anything that's happening. I don't, I don't have a choice in this trial. This trial is just there and there's nothing I can do about it, but I can choose how we react and how we fight against it. And that's what we've done this whole time. I love that. That actually, um, segues perfectly into our listener questions. I hate that I have to wrap this up. I wish you could just keep telling me how big of a BA you are and all of your crazy stories all night long. Um, but somebody actually did ask how how you keep a level perspective amidst so much chaos. So do you have anything more to add than what you just said? I would just... Honestly, like there was days where it was literally praying to get through the minute, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I recently actually found some of my old journal entries of like letters that I'd written to God. And I talked about suicide and I talked about wanting to be dead and um, talking about how Hensley and Tregan didn't really need me. Like I was in really dark places many times through this journey. I don't want people to think that I've literally just been like, Hey, this is awesome. I love cancer. (laughs) Not that has not been this at all. Um, cancer is the craziest roller coaster ride Mm -hmm. and emotions are always up and down. And, um, I think it's just important to, to not let yourself live in the darkness because I totally let myself go there. And some days it just feels good. Honestly, sometimes it just feels good to cry and to have a pity party and be like, my life really sucks right now. And that's, (laughs) no one can argue with you. 
Like Mm-mm. your life does totally suck right now. And A, B, C, and D are all going wrong. But I just, I, I don't know. At some point I decided that I wasn't going to allow myself to just stay there. That I was mm-hmm. going to, and I think that's why we had to plan those little trips very early on when I was going through chemo is because that was, a, that was forcing me also not to stay in the dark. That was forcing me to get out and to live and to, to enjoy life and to, to find the good. So I would just encourage people to, I don't know how to even word it correctly, but you just have to pay attention to how you feel, I think is important and to allow yourself to be sad, but, but don't allow yourself to stay there. Do what you have to get out of it and to get out of it as quick as possible. Because no matter what comes, life is life is hard, and that's that's what I've learned. It's just going to be hard, and we can either make it worse by allowing ourselves to stay in the dark, or we can make it better by finding the light within the darkness. I love that. Um, I've thought about that a lot, and even read something, or somebody said, I don't remember, but somebody, I think it was just in talking to somebody said like I think they were talking about living with like anxiety or depression or something and they're like yeah I have it but I don't let it rule my life you know I can choose whether even if I feel kind of sucky I can choose whether to act on that and make it even worse or be like okay kind of separate it and be like I might feel this way but I know I still love going out and I still love doing this and it's not going to control my life and I think you were just like the utmost example of that and everything you've been telling me you're like you know this was really really bad but I looked forward to this I feel like when you were going through your entire story you kept anytime you could tell that you were in a really bad place or dark place you you did you looked towards the light even in your story you're like but then I had this to look forward to and it got me through and then I did this and it made me so much better and I mean, just kudos to you to always finding the light, even though I know it's probably a daily struggle to do so. Um, okay. Um, you had a lot of questions. I'm trying to get the ones that we might have not touched on quite all the way. Um, so what are some things? I'm going to kind of combine two questions. Somebody asked, when things are heavy, and you have, like, you've had these past four years, you just have repeated bad news. What do you fall back on? And then another question was, that goes along with it, what things do you do to to be positive and motivated to live your life? Um, well, because of my strong belief in uh, Heavenly Father, um, that has honestly been my biggest saving grace and I really I encourage people to find out if they believe in a God to figure out how they can communicate with them most effectively because um for me it's being in the shower or the bathtub alone where I can talk out loud where I can scream and yell and cry and get it all out because um they're like um, are they're the only one that knows how we exactly feel. Your husband doesn't, your wife doesn't, your your brother or sister, you know, whoever is closest to you in this world, they do not get how you feel. Mm-hmm. And um, but the savior does, and he 
he's the only one that gets it. And so I think for me, that has been the biggest blessing to be able to turn to that. Um, what was the other part of the question? How do I stay positive? Yeah. And motivated. Um, motivation is totally my, my little girl and my husband. I, that was what made me the sickest when I was little, um, or when I was little, when she was little and I was, you know, thought I was really dying pretty quickly. I just kept thinking of everything I was going to miss out on. Mm-hmm. And that is motivation enough to be like, no, <laughs> I'm going to keep fighting so that I can see as much as this little girl's life as possible, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think just to stay positive, um, Surrounding yourself with good people. Um, I don't know. How do I stay positive? <laughs> I think I just allow myself to to soak in the crappy news. Like the day that I got the drain, I was super pissed. Or knew, I was told that I was going to have to get this drain back in, what, like two weeks ago or something? Mm-hmm. And I was with my husband and he was like, oh, just be happy. I'm like, just let me be pissed for five minutes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm happy all the time about this crap. And right now I just want to be pissed. Mm. And I, I just, I, I allow myself that grace and that, that time to just be mad. And then I'm like, okay, now put your big girl panties on and suck it up and go deal with it. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's important. Sometimes people are like, Oh, don't, don't wallow in it or whatever. And yeah, don't wallow in it, but allow yourself to feel the crappy. Cause if you don't, then it's all going to, become one big bomb and explode on you one day. I I totally agree. I don't get mad. I just cry. I mean, I'm sure you could guess that after me crying already like three times on this in the past hour. But I totally agree that you need to feel the emotions and not not let them destroy your life. But it's good to have like however you deal with stuff like me, I cry. I need to have like a hard cry session. And then after I'm done, I'm like, okay, I can do it, you know? I think it's super important that way. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think just being grateful, having, I started a gratitude journal a few weeks ago and just every night I just write down, you know, two or three things that I'm grateful for. And on bad days, that can be really hard to just sit down and you're, you know, you're all in a bad mood and you're like, oh, nothing good happened today. And then when you actually stop and think about it, you're like, hey, I still have a roof over my head. I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. Like everything in the day could go horribly wrong and you can still find things to be grateful for. So I think just having an attitude of being grateful about as much as you can in your life just helps you to be more positive. Yeah, I totally agree. Gratitude is something that everybody, I mean, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like sometimes when you're faced with these big trials, it allows you to like be more grateful because you can like, I feel like you can easily separate the fluff from the stuff that actually matters. And so you become so grateful for that kind of stuff and not get carried away and all this like fluff and different things that don't matter. But it's important for all of us to remember to be grateful for what we have. Okay. Sorry. It's such an interesting thing to me that I just, I literally, I'm so grateful that I have cancer and that I've gone through everything that I've gone through. As hard as it's been, there's nothing else in this world that could have made me become so aware and so grateful and 
enjoy life the way that I do now and like want to experience the things that I want to experience and just not take things for granted anymore. And it sucks that it was a terminal illness that had to kind of wake me up to that. Mm -hmm. So if people can figure out how to do that without having a terminal illness, then you've won at life, I think. So I agree. That's the key. I, I totally agree. That was actually my last question. I was going to ask you what if you learned and how has cancer helped you in your life? So it's made me stronger. It's made me wiser. And man, I'm grateful for it, honestly. And it's, I think it's made me a way better person than I, I was four years ago. Yeah. Well, you can, you are just, I, I wish we lived closer. We could be best friends. Like you are somebody that has so much fire in them and I cannot get enough of it. I watch like all of your things on Instagram, all your posts and you are such a light and fire in this world. And I, I mean, thank you for that. Thank you for fighting and showing us that you're still going through with some of like the most sucky stuff, but you're always just so driven and positive and we need more of that in the world so thank you and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and tell your story it's I mean an amazing story to hear so many miracles and different things that have happened to you I can't even believe it you're awesome Casey thanks so much for having me um lastly actually where can people connect with you What's the best way for them to reach out to you if they have any follow-up questions or whatever? Instagram is where I'm at mostly. It's uh, Kim Can Kick It. When I was diagnosed, my they did a benefit concert for me, and they wanted to do those bracelets. And we couldn't think of a clever name to do, but because I played soccer, it ended up being Kim Can Kick It, and that's just kind of stuck. So um, Kim can kick it on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I don't get on there as much. I think it's just Kim Olson White on Facebook. But yeah, Instagram is basically where I'm at. Yeah, I follow her Instagram. It's awesome. Everybody should go follow her because you're just the best. So thank you so much, Kim. I have so enjoyed talking to you and can't wait to keep rooting for you in this journey of yours. Thanks, Casey. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Hope it brought you a little bit of knowledge, inspiration, and a good hour to your day. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.